Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're looking at the life of David, the second king of Israel. In a previous episode, we were looking at the life of Saul, the first king of Israel. So, Mike, how different were they? Incredibly different. As we saw in a previous episode, Saul didn't start out as he ended up. He actually started out as a humble man, great guy, came from a good family, but ends up in disaster. Why? Because he constantly wanted to put his own will first. And one of the interesting things is that when God speaks to the prophet Samuel, telling him that I've had to reject Saul as king, I cannot have a king who puts himself over me. He says to him that I've found a man after my own heart. And and that sums it up. David was a man who absolutely was not perfect, as we'll see as the story unfolds. But he was a man who had a soft and a tender heart towards God. And that's the sort of person that God wants as a leader among his people. Let's just go back a bit then. Where where did David come from? What, what was his family? He came from that uh, well-known town of Bethlehem uh, that will appear in the story much later on, of course. Um, came from a good family. His father was Jesse, who had a whole number of sons. They seemed to have been pretty well off. They had a whole number of herds. Um, but David was the youngest. So in fact, when Samuel the prophet comes looking for this replacement king, for King Saul, and God has directed him to this family. And you can imagine perhaps uh, the dad in the family thinking, this is it, this is my moment. And he brings out his sons from the oldest, of course. You always start with the oldest, the one who's going to inherit. And that was uh, David's brother Eliab. And he brings him out and he's strong and he's tall. And even Samuel, when he sees him, thinks, this must be the one. And God says to him, don't consider his height or his appearance. I've rejected him. The Lord does not look as man looks at things. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. So there's this thing again, of there was something about David's soft heart towards God. And sort of they work through the line, all the sons. And each time God says to Samuel, nope, not him. Nope, not him. No, not him. I imagine Jesse's face falling at that point as he thought, no, I thought one of my sons was going to be the future king. And Samuel is left, you know, scratching his head thinking, you know, I felt sure you said this was it, Lord. And and then eventually he says, look, the Lord's not chosen any of the, are these all the sons you've got? I love what follows. Well, there's the youngest, but he's just looking after the sheep. You won't want to see him. He's too young, too insignificant. And Samuel says, we won't start the feast till he comes. And so they somewhat reluctantly send for this young boy, David. He's described as being, you know, ruddy and he's got a fine appearance. He's quite a, a good looking young boy at this stage. And the minute he walks in, God says to Samuel, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel takes a, a horn, an animal's horn full of oil and pours this oil all over David's head in the presence of his family. Remember, this is just the family at this moment. And he says, and from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came on David in power and he's anointed to be king. 
I was going to say, because there's already a king on the throne. Saul. There's already a king on the throne. And as we know, those in power don't like to let go of their power. So the second half of 1 Samuel is all about the decline of this king, whom God has now rejected. King Saul. And the rise of this other king, King David, yet to, as he will yet be. Yet to be crowned King David, yeah. And the rise of this young man and God's working and shaping in his life. Because, you know, I don't know how long it took for Samuel to pour the oil over his head. You know, may, maybe it took 10 seconds pour the oil but it will take about 10 years for david to actually come into that when god calls us to something it doesn't always happen immediately there's often a time of preparation and pruning and training and that's exactly what will happen to this young man david so what are some of the the, the key moments uh, in in the life of david to prepare him for this enormous task He's interestingly introduced to Saul's court through his gift of being able to uh, play a harp and sing songs, probably worship songs like those psalms. And when Saul was having some of his manic bouts, music was one of the things that helped him. And he's, he's brought in and, of course, he goes back home each time after he's finished. But it's interesting, he's brought right under King Saul's nose. But One of the other big points is in chapter 17, that story that many of the listeners will know, the story of David and Goliath, when this champion Goliath, this seven foot something tall guy, comes out every day challenging Israel to battle. One of the things they used to do in the ancient world to save on bloodshed was to have battle by champion. Each side chose one champion. They had a battle between them. Whichever one fought, it was deemed their side won. So this towering giant of a guy, Goliath, with great heavy armor and great big iron weapons, because the Philistines had access to iron technology, comes out every day doing a sort of fee-fi-fo-fum type of thing (laughs) and challenging the Israelites to fight him. And, of course, no one dared. And Saul, Saul is the warrior king, so he's he's in charge of uh, the army at this point. Isn't yeah, he? and he's not very good at coming forward himself. So clearly this guy, Goliath, must have been pretty fearsome. And 1 Samuel 17 tells us he came out every day for 40 days doing this challenge. And it's on one of those days that David's sent by his dad, Jesse, with some food stuff and to see how his brothers are doing at the front line. Some of the brothers have been called up in the army. Remember, this is not a period yet of a standing army. People were called up in time of need. So David's left back at home to tend the flocks. He's been left at home to look after the flocks, the youngest, the nobody, remember, in the family. And dad sends him to go and see how his brothers are. And so he does. And they really resent him coming to ask about them. And while he's there, Goliath does one of his daily appearances. And David says, who's this guy? Who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Uncircumcised, in other words, he's not part of the people of God. What is he doing challenging the people of God? And there's this great story in chapter 17 where he he says, well, if you lot won't go and do it, I'll do it. Now, he's a young teenager at this point. We're not quite sure, maybe about 14, 15 years old, something like that. And he's not got any armour. He's not got any armour. They want to put it on. Saul says, well, if you're going to fight, here you are. Here's my armour. So he puts it on and, of course, it doesn't fit. Seems like he's still at the sort of 
sorry, but the lanky teenager at this stage. You know, he's not filled out into being <laughs> the man yet. And the armour just drops off him. And David says, I can't fight in this. By the way, we can't fight in other people's armour. We have to fight in what God's made us and given us, not by imitating other people. And he says, I, I, you know, I don't need that. Listen, I've had to go out and fight lions and bears and to protect the sheep when I've been up there in the hills. God's protected me, you know, and the God who's delivered me from lions and bears will deliver me from this Philistine. So he goes out with the only armor he ever knows, which is his sling, picks up his stones, forget the ideas of David and his five little pebbles from the brook. Archaeologists have found slingshots. They're about the size of cricket balls, baseballs. So imagine one of those hitting you at speed could do real damage. Even though you might have armor on. Even though you've got armor. And what David does is very clever. He's really skilled with this sling. He goes out to the Philistine. The Philistine is livid that this young whippersnapper has been out to fight him. But David says, today God's going to give you into my hands and the whole earth will know that there is a living God in Israel. And he runs towards Goliath. And as he runs, he swings his slingshot, lets it go. And this cricket-sized, baseball-sized ball flies through the air, thwacks straight into the middle of his forehead, and Goliath falls down, knocked unconscious. David rushes up, takes his own sword, cuts his head off, and the battle is won, and the Philistines flee. So here's how we're first introduced to David. Even at a young age, we've been introduced to him as a tender-hearted man who loves singing worship songs to God that can help the king. But he's also been introduced as fearless, not because of any abilities he's got himself, but because he knows that God is with him. So he wasn't overconfident in his own skills or abilities, having fought with animals in the wild. Not at all, because he constantly comes back to this truth of then people will know that the living God is the God of the whole earth, the God of Israel. Now, what on earth did Saul think of that? Well, he seems to have been pretty impressed. And he says, who is that young man? And he says, I'm David of Bethlehem. And it, it seems at this point or shortly afterwards, initially it looks like David just goes back home. But eventually he has made one of Saul's leaders in his army. That's where David and Jonathan, Saul's son, start to become really good friends and where Jonathan, as we saw in a previous episode, begins to recognize what God is doing in this young man. And so David starts to lead in chapter 18. He starts to take um, members of Saul's army out. And wherever he goes, he has success. He has defeat. So we're seeing more and more of this young man coming up. And of course, Saul is really pleased with this until he hears a song one day. Uh, in chapter 18, uh, David and his men are coming back from a victory over the Philistines. And as they come back, people come out to cheer him and they're singing and dancing. And as they dance, they sing this song that has this refrain. I'll say it to you, not sing it to you. <laughs> but it was a song. Saul has killed his thousands. And you can imagine Saul's heart swelling with pride mm. at this moment till they got to the second line. Saul has killed his thousands and David, his tens of thousands. Oh, dear. And you can imagine at that point how Saul started 
to feel. In fact, the very next verse says, this made Saul very angry. They credit David with tens of thousands, but me only with thousands. And it says, from that day on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Now, remember, he's been told by Samuel the prophet that the crown has been taken from him. He'd be on the lookout. Mm. And he's now spotted the guy who he thinks he's got to keep his eye on. Mm. That was the beginning of the end for him, really. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So David established himself as as uh, successful in military terms then, uh, even though he's still within Saul's army. How does the warfare continue? How does How successful well, does he become? David gets more and more successful as we read in this story, to the point where Saul becomes more and more jealous. Uh, He even tries to kill him. There's one incident where in one of his manic episodes, when David is at the court, he throws a spear at him and David has to flee. And eventually he has to free. And Jonathan, his friend, arranges to sort of pass messages onto him to let him know how things are going back home. Sadly, the message is not good. Saul is determined to kill him. And so... David has to run. Now, here's the irony of this. Here is the man who's been anointed as God's king, now being hounded by the man who won't let go of the kingship, even though he's been told by God it's his no longer. Anointed in a moment, but now this long period before he will actually become king. And so what we get in the remaining chapters of 1 Samuel is interspersed with Saul's decline, We get how David's on the run. And for about the next 10 years or so, he has to run endlessly from Saul, hiding in cities, hiding in forests, hiding in caves, hiding in the desert, moving from one place to another. And each time Saul hears where he is, he goes after him and David has to move on to the next place. I wonder what this guy must have been thinking. God, you said I was going to be king. And look what's happening now. It's all going wrong would have been so easy for him to think. By the end of 1 Samuel, he even has to go and hide in enemy heartland. He goes to Philistine territory and offers to serve the Philistines. Now, some of the Philistines are very wary, of course, but he says, no, no, you know, Saul is after me. I'm coming to serve you as a mercenary. So they give him a town called Ziklag that becomes his base. And all over this period, by the way, people start joining. David. Little by little, people start seeing what God is doing. And it it says that all who were distressed and discontented Hmm. came to him. Imagine that you were a small group leader in your church and the elders gave you all those who were distressed and discontented Mm -hmm. to look after as your training ground. That's what David has. And over this time, he's learning leadership. He's learning people skills. He's learning to wait on God's moment. He's he's learning you have to do strange things sometimes, like even going to the Philistines. He doesn't actually go and attack Saul, as he tells them. He actually goes and instead attacks mutual enemies of Philistines and Israel, but brings back their booty and says, look what I got from Saul. And then as they gather for the last great battle, that battle that we saw in a previous episode where King Saul was killed on Mount Gilboa, David has to be ready to go out with them to battle. And it's only as he's getting ready to go, some of the Philistines say, here, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. This was the guy that they used to sing about. Supposing he comes into battle with us and he turns against us in the heat of battle, we won't take him. And so 
the king of gath has to say to him listen i'm sorry i really wanted to take you with me but they won't let me and debbie says oh no i was so looking forward to going into this battle he must have breathed a sigh of relief you know sometimes we can get ourselves in a pickle and i think at this point David had manipulated just a little bit too far, and it was only the grace of God that rescued him from being involved in that final battle against Saul and the Israelites on Mount Gilboa. But that whole thing is a period of about 10 years on the run while God is preparing him, doing things in his heart, training him for the future. And in the meantime, while Saul is constantly on the decline, both in terms of his own health and in terms of his leadership of God's people. So on Saul's death, did that then lead to David becoming king? Not immediately, or at least not immediately for all of God's people. Remember, this is still in the time when Israel is, is still very much a, a tribal grouping. Those 12 tribes that had come in uh, to the land under Joshua. It's still very much a tribal confederacy. And the fault lines showed uh, pretty quickly. So what happens is, first of all, his, his own people from the south ask him to become king. And so as we move now into the second book of Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 2, David is anointed king of Judah. Once Saul is dead, he here's an interesting thing. The chapter starts with Saul, uh, sorry, David asked of the Lord, is it time for me to go up? He's not presumptuous. He could have thought, this is it. This is my moment. This is what I've been waiting for. But no, he asked the Lord, should I go up? And God says, it's time. And then David says, where? And God says, to Hebron in the south. So just the southern tribes. Yes, become just king for of. now. He's right. going to become the king of those southern tribes, uh, of Judah, of Benjamin, of Simeon, of those southern tribes. And it's seven years pass in which he is king of those southern tribes. Meanwhile, the rest of the nation is led by Saul's surviving son. And he remains king of the northern tribes, a man called Ishbosheth, quite a mouthful. And he rules in the north, but he's a really weak king. He's not physically strong. He doesn't seem to have been a very strong personality. And eventually, he's assassinated. And it's at that point in chapter 5 that then the representatives of the tribe of Israel come to David as king. And they suddenly all get very pious and say, oh, in the past, the Lord, you know, promised this and you did that. And we now really think that you should be our king. And so at that point, they receive him as king as well. And now from 2 Samuel 5, there at Hebron, David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel. And it notes he was 30 years old when he began to reign. So this is a long period from that young teenager mm. that he's had to go through this process of being prepared by God to become king. And it's only now that he can begin to unite the nation. His first step's very clever that we read about in chapter five. What he knows is he needs a new capital. Because if he stays at Hebron in the south, all the northern tribes are going to think favoritism. <laughs> so what he realized he needs is a new capital. And there's one right there under his nose. It's a place called Jerusalem. 
And Jerusalem just happened to lay right on the border between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. But it still hadn't been taken. You know, when Joshua led the people into the promised land, there were still cities that resisted and would never, ever been taken. And Mm. Jerusalem, or Jebus, as it was also called at this time and its inhabitants, the Jebusites, had resisted all these years. And so David attacks the city of Jerusalem. It's impregnable. But he knows of a water shaft, a secret water shaft that goes up into the city. And they're able to climb up through that, conquer that from the inside. And he now establishes Jerusalem as a new capital. So suddenly we've got a new kingdom, north and south united, no longer a tribal confederacy. New kingdom, new king of the whole thing, and a new capital, Jerusalem, that will become so important in Israel's unfolding history. So David himself then, of course, becomes even more important, perhaps in his own eyes. I don't know. I mean, how how does he deal with being a king? I think initially he coped really well. I mean, in these early years, one of the very first things he does when he establishes Jerusalem as the capital is he has the Ark of the Covenant brought there. It's as if he's wanting to say that I want God at the very heart of all that we do. And and so it's clear that his heart is towards God. He's he's humble. He's going to be the very opposite of all that Saul was. God, I want to do it your way. And then in chapter seven, we we find him wanting to make a temple for the Ark of the Covenant. It's only been in a tent, a tabernacle so far, hasn't it? And he says to Nathan the prophet, this is really in my heart. And then said, yeah, this is great. Go ahead. But in the night, God speaks to Nathan and says, No, 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 no. He's not the one to do it. And so Nathan has to go back to David and says, God sees what's in your heart, how you want him to be right at the center of your nation. But you are not the one to build a house for me. Actually, I've never had a house. I didn't need one. I still don't need one. But you know what? I'll let your son build a house for me. But you can't because you've shed too much blood. But David you know what? You wanted to build a house for me. Here's my promise to you. I will build a house for you. And he makes what scholars call the Davidic covenant, a covenant, a binding promise with King David that there would never fail to be a descendant of King David upon the throne. So here now we have a promise of the man after God's heart will always have a son on the throne of Israel. Of course, that will become a problem in Israel's history when that doesn't happen, and as it still happens today. But of course, we as Christians know who that king is. Jesus, the son of David, is truly seated, not just in Jerusalem, but in the hearts of all his people. So that's the Davidic covenant. A promise, a covenant, a binding agreement from God that God would always make sure that David had a descendant upon the throne. So he starts out with so much promise. It's absolutely great. He's the man after God's heart. He's putting things at the center. We read about early victories that he has, and he defeats Philistines and Ammonites. And and up to chapter 10, everything is going swimmingly. It is a great, perfect story. What a great place to end it and put the full stop. But what was his personal life like? Sadly, 
the full stop turns into a comma because there was stuff going on in David's personal life. And from chapter 11 onwards, we find a whole number of things where there were issues that David just hadn't dealt with. And the first one, of course, is the one for which David is known by so many people these days. And that was uh, a failure of adultery with this woman called Bathsheba. Chapter 11 starts out in a really interesting way. In the spring of the war, when kings normally go to war, David sent Joab. So, but David wasn't at war. He wasn't at war. He should have been. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, so often we fall into sin when we put ourselves in a place where we shouldn't be at a time we shouldn't be. And that's what happened to David. He should have been elsewhere. He was here. And he's walking out on the roof of his palace one night when he happens to spot a woman bathing. Now, there have been stories of, you know, Bathsheba flouting herself. If you've ever been to any countries in the Middle East or to India, where there are high buildings and low buildings and people often bathe outside behind a partition or a wall, it would have been very easy for David to look from the roof of his palace onto the smaller buildings round about. He sees this beautiful woman bathing and he sends to find out who, who's this woman. Uh, and immediately the servant says she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And at that moment, alarm bell should have rung. The wife, David, back off. Mm, married woman. But David sent for her. Oh, I'm sure he only wanted to talk with her. They probably just wanted to have a little drink and pass the time of day. But human nature being what it is, we know the story, he ends up in bed with her. She ends up pregnant. She sends news to him that he's pregnant. He has to cover this up. So he arranges for her husband to be brought back from the front in the hope that he'll go and sleep with his wife. But this mind has got too much character about him to say, I can't go home and have the comforts of home while my men are in the field. He even tries to get him drunk so that he'll go back to his wife. And eventually when he won't do it and goes back to the front, he has to send a command to Joab, his military commander, to put Uriah in the thick of the fighting. And then when the Philistines press, pull back and let him be killed. And Joab has to send this message that poor old Uriah got killed in battle. And of course, David at that point would have breathed a sigh of relief. And he tells us that when the period of mourning was over, now, the period of mourning was only seven days. So just one week later, he can do the nice thing. He can take poor Bathsheba, who's been left without a husband. Do you know what? I'll take her as one of my wives because he had more than one. And I'll have her. I'll look after her. But of course, it's a great cover up, isn't it? But we hide nothing from God, you know. Whatever we do, God sees and God sends the prophet the next day with a parable about a man who stole the little sheep of a neighbor. And David gets all self-righteous and says, the man who does this deserves to die. And Nathan looks him in the eye and says, you are the man. And at this point, we see the big difference between Saul and David. Because David says, I have sinned against the Lord. He holds his hands up. That particular child, as it happens, dies. But then they have another child together, and that child will become Solomon, the next great king. It's as if God is saying, even your messes I can redeem. Wasn't just that one incident, by the way. There were a whole number of um, 
problems that came later that I've often wondered whether it came out of this. Because David seemed to end up being something of a weak father, and he really just couldn't take his kids in hand. And I've often wondered whether it came out of this experience of losing that child. As a pastor over many years, I've seen the tenderness in parents' hearts who lose a child. Was it that? But in the remaining chapters, what we find is that he fails to deal with Ammon, who's his eldest son, who therefore probably thought he'd succeed to the throne when he rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Then he fails to deal with Absalom, his third son, after he's avenged Tamar by killing Ammon and he lets him flee, but he takes no action. Then he allows Absalom to come back out of exile without dealing with him. And Absalom sees this as weakness, starts to gather people around him. Oh, yeah, you've got a good case there. It's just a shame that King David's too busy these days to listen to your problems and starts to slowly gather people around them. And by the end of 2 Samuel, we've actually ended up with Absalom leading a civil war against his own father and David fleeing. And it's only the strength of David's military commander, Joab, that brings things to a head, who has Absalom killed much to David's great sorrow. So David was a fantastic guy, but let us never think he was perfect. That big, big mistake with Bathsheba and this repeated ongoing mistake with just not taking his kids in hand and learning how to say no to his children almost robbed him of the crown and almost ripped his nation apart. And what do you take from David's life, recognising that he wasn't perfect? For me... The biggest thing that I take from David's life is no matter how badly we have messed up, there can always be hope when we bring it to God. David was such a contrast to Saul. Saul, full of excuses, full of blaming others. David, it was me. And the message I take out of this is that failure does not disqualify me providing I handle it right, providing I own up and come clean and give it to God, God can still take my failure and weave it into his plan and bring something amazing out of it, not just for me, but for him and his purposes and his kingdom. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.